All right. Welcome back to the lectures on homegoing. Opening music by one of my new favorite pandemic bands. That's <laughs> uh, a terrible thing to call it, actually. But uh, anyway, one of my new favorite bands, Chris Renzema. Uh, fantastic. His album Age to Age has uh, been fantastic to listen to and think about. His lyrics are very thoughtful. Um, Mariah Hazeltine um, is the is, is the singer here you're hearing, but he'll join her in a moment. Uh, beautiful. Uh, a lot of a lot of hope and um, joy in in this in this music. And so, if you're interested, check it out. Again, uh, it's Chris Renzema album Age to Age. So we're picking up here in Homegoing with the chapter Marjorie. I really like this this young lady. She's got a lot of fire, and um, man, she's tough. Uh, reminds me a lot of myself. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. That's just a joke. Sorry. Just, you can't see my face, so humor is kind of hard across the, the wavelengths here, but uh, just joking. Um, so Marjorie is part of Effia's line, as you've probably figured out, and that's part of the journey in this book, right? For the few of you who joined me uh, on uh, today, actually, earlier today um, on the Zoom call, um, by the way, we'll have another one of those next week, so so stay tuned. I'll, I'll throw it on on the announcements um, to invite you to a Zoom call. Um, just to kick around ideas and ask questions, uh, things that I may have not mentioned in the lectures, um, maybe some just general comments about the reading and so forth. Uh, they don't have to be long. Um, you can come and go as you please. But um, anyway, that's just for you. That's for your benefit if you like. If you want to take advantage of those, you can. I know that a lot of people um, have, have tough schedules and stuff, so it's not. that's why I'm not making it mandatory. Uh, but that'll be next week at some point, and I'll announce that um, in the Blackboard announcements. But um, so Marjorie, part of Effia's line, and um, this is actually the first chapter, I don't know if you've noticed this, when Effia's line um, are in America. It's kind of weird to think back about that. So for, for Effia's line, this whole time, they have been in Ghana, in Africa. Uh, so this is the first time that they're in America. And um, this, this young lady, Marjorie, is the daughter of Yah and Esther. Yah and Esther. Uh, she is the granddaughter of Akua, right? Akua was the fire, the one who was taunted by the fire and so forth. So Yah and Esther, uh, that was a great chapter where they traveled back. Uh, actually, Yah and Esther were, were living in Ghana. They went to the village to visit Akua for the first time. Akua touches Yah's face and he, and he just breaks down in tears. I love that scene. It's so powerful. The way she touches his, his scars and in, in a way she travels all the way back in time and, he t and she takes him back there um, with her. Um, why he cries, you know, maybe he sees something in his mom for the first time, her pain perhaps, um, as she connects with his scars. Uh, it's beautiful. So, um, with Marjorie, there is an inherited pain, um, an inherited shame from her father and grandmother in a way. Um, we see uh, in the opening, um, it says, Ees, Excuse me, sister, I take you see castle, Cape Coast Castle, five cities. You come from America? I take you see slave ship, just five cent cities. The boy was probably around 10 years old, only a few young, years younger than Marjorie herself was. He had been following her since she and her grandmother's housekeeper got off the Trotro. The locals did this, waiting for tourists to disembark so that they could con them into paying for things Ghanaians 
knew were free. Marjorie tried to ignore him, but she was hot and tired, still feeling the sweat of the other people who had been pressed against her back and chest and sides on the nearly eight-hour trotro ride from Accra. I take you see Cape Coast Castle, sis, just five setties, he repeated. He wore no shirt, and she could feel the heat radiating radiating off his skin coming toward her. After all the traveling, she couldn't stand another strange body so near hers, and so she soon found herself shouting in twee. I'm from Ghana, stupid. Can't you see? The boy didn't stop his English, but you come from America. Uh, This is a a pretty interesting way to start the chapter, right? She knows twee. She speaks the, the native Ghanaian tongue, and yet she is treated as an American, as a foreigner, as an other. She is not one of them. Um, we've talked about this in the past, uh, other other recordings. Um, she, in many ways, is seen as an other. She has an American privilege all around her that this boy is reading. Of course, he doesn't know her, and so he's just judging her by what he sees. He sees American culture all over her body. And so he says, ah, but obviously you come from America. You're not Ghanaian. You're not one of us. So an interesting mistake, right? Because she's very... Uh, annoyed by this, right? She is Ghanaian. She knows better than to give into a, a goofball like this little con artist. Um, and yet she is treated like an other, uh, not based on her skin because she's most likely just as dark as this young man is. Um, but based on her culture and the cultural vibe that she's giving off on, uh, on 265 in the middle there, an interesting paragraph, the response was a reflex. Whenever her father or grandmother asked about her, about her, about pain, Marjorie would say she had never known it. As a young child, someone had told her that the scars her father wore on his face and her grandmother on her hands and feet were born of great pain. And because Marjorie had no scars that resembled those, she could never bring herself to complain of pain. Um, I, I love this. Again, this, this appearance versus reality tension. Again, this plays nicely into our discussion, right, of what is appearance versus what is reality. Um, the whole idea of, of this hot topic of white privilege is based on appearances. You're making, you're making an assumption about someone because they have light skin. Um, did you look close enough? Could it be that their skin is a little bit olive or a little bit darker and they may have grown up in you know Asia or they may have grown up in um, Latin America? Are you sure? How, how white how white does their skin need to be in order to have white privilege? Uh, it's, a, it's a slippery slope there um, that we would engage in by making that kind of a common um, way of speaking about people. That's why I'm kind of passionately against it, to be honest with you. I feel like it's just one more form of racism, right? How white are you to have to have white privilege? Um, does your skin have to be kind of like peach color? Or does my skin, which is kind of a combination of Italian and German, is that is that dark enough to not be white, or am I just kind of in the, in the, in the main ballpark? Um, here, for her, now we move into a different way of judging appearance versus reality. She doesn't have physical scars, but she has scarring inside, right? She has scarring on her soul. She has scarring on her on her mind and on her heart. She's She has had to bear some real challenges. Um, she has not had an easy life. Um, as an American with quote unquote American privilege, right? She has not had that. Um, and yet on the outside, she looks perfectly pure. Um, she has no physical scarring. 
so she must be privileged. No. Um, and, and that's that's what she's kind of describing here, that struggle of being judged according to the external, right, and not known, uh, not understood. A little farther down, looking at her grandmother's hands now, it was almost impossible to distinguish scarred from wrinkled skin. The whole landscape of the woman's body had transformed into a ruin. The young woman had been toppled, leaving this. That's a, an incredible description by an incredible author. Um, but uh, but the connection of, 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 of the skin, the age and the scars, right? So time itself, if you read um, on my blog, maybe I'll throw a link up to my blog, but I've been, I've been doing a project during this, this time of uh, sequestering um, on Shakespeare's sonnets. And his opening six sonnets are all about the ravages of time and the way that time destroys beauty. Um, beauty itself is something that is so fleeting and Shakespeare really kind of goes off on it and, and challenges his reader to, to distill, uh, to search for, um, and try to understand things of a deeper value, things that, that will be a blessing to others, even generationally uh, a blessing. So here, um, her grandmother, uh, Akua, age, time has taken its toll on her, ravaged her body. And it now blends in with the scarring. And so this woman has been scarred with time, um, as have many people in the text. They've been scarred through time. And this text is a lot about that human struggle. If you jump over to uh, 267, we see the, the repeated motif of the stone, right? The black stone that runs through Ephia's line. Are you wearing the stone? Her grandmother asked. Instinctively, Marjorie raised her hand to the necklace. Her father had given it to her only a year before, saying that she was finally old enough to care for it. It had belonged to Old Lady and to Abina before her, and to James and Quay and Effia, the beauty before that. It had begun with Mammy, the woman who had set a great fire. Her father had told her that the necklace was part of their family history, and she was to never take it off, never give it away. Now it reflected the ocean water before them. Gold waves shimmering in the black stone. Yes, old lady, she said. Her grandmother took her hand, and once more they fell silent. You are in this water, she finally said. Um, I love this notion, right? So the black stone, that's the first time that's been said. You were to never take it off. So the black stone represents heritage. It represents um, connection to ancestry, connection to family and history. You are never to be without that connection, right? This symbolic connection to your family, to your ancestry, to who you are. In a, in a way, you could stretch it a little farther to say, never forget who you are. Um, don't disconnect yourself from your heritage. And that's that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, this black stone represents family, connection to the land. Um, yeah, it's good. The um, Let's jump over then. 267, maybe two... 270. Um, toward the bottom of that page on 270, what do you think about the book? Mrs. Pinkston said, pointing to the copy of Lord of the Flies that dangled from Marjorie's hands. I like it, Marjorie said. But do you love it? Do you feel it inside you? Marjorie shook her head. She didn't know what it meant to feel a book inside of her. But she didn't want to tell her English teacher that, lest it disappoint her. Mrs. Pinkston laughed. Her moving train laugh, leaving Marjorie to her reading. 
Um, I, I've mentioned this before, and I always make a lot of this kind of metafictional idea, right? When you're reading um, a novel or a book like this, it's important to take note of characters who are writers, characters who are artistic in some ways. Um, we looked at earlier Willie. Willie was a singer, right? That's an important kind of artistic expression. Here we have um, reading. So anything to do with reading, writing, singing, artistic expression can fall into that category of metafiction, which is literature about literature or self-conscious literature. So here she's reading, but we are also reading, right? You and I are reading Homegoing, and this character is reading. And so the question that's asked of her, do you, what is it? What's the question? <laughs> but do you love it? Do you feel it inside you? Um, is that the purpose of reading? Is the purpose of reading a text to feel it inside you, to be moved deeply by it? Perhaps um, at times, I think some literature is meant to do that. Um, but the question, I guess, would be, does Gyasi, Ya Gyasi, our author, does she want us to internalize this text? Um, I think uh, I think that would be a good idea, to be honest with you. Um, I, I want this text to be inside me. I want it to be kind of working at my limited vision. I want it to be working at my insensitivities. Um, I, I want it to be working on my impatience, right? As I think about this text and these characters, as we take a journey inside their minds, um, this this should raise our level of empathy, I suppose, right? You're you're hearing very painful stories about people's journeys and struggles, um, and those stories uh, can, I suppose, and should um, soften your heart toward others, right? Because as you look at others, um, you know there's a complex story there. And if you fail to see that, then then perhaps you're being um, haphazard or you're being uh, impatient or you're not extending enough courtesy or dignity to someone else who who is a human, just like yourself, with, with a complex life. So um, self-conscious literature, that's metafiction, drawing attention to the book you are reading and the reading process. What do we expect from books? What does it mean to feel a book inside you? Internalizing of the ideas and the meanings are important. Um, <clears throat> all right, so let's just push ahead here. Uh, Graham is an interesting character here on page 271. Um, he put his index finger to his lips. Don't tell anyone, he said. And she smiled despite herself. My name is Marjorie Graham. They shook hands and Graham told her about Pigeon Feathers, the book he was reading. He told her that his family had just moved there from Germany, that his father was in the military, that his mother had died long ago. Marjorie must have spoken too, but she couldn't remember what she had said, only that she had smiled so much her cheeks ached. Before they knew it, the bell rang and the lunch hour was over, and they went on to their next class. Uh, so Graham is this interesting character. He's from Germany. We assume he's white at this point. She is black. Um, so we have an interracial couple. Um uh, and so, so this obviously would be the first of its kind in this text, except for going all the way back to um, the early part of the text, right? Uh, with um, the marriage, the uh, given marriage of Ephia to the Cape Coast commander, um, James. And so uh, that's an interesting idea that all of a sudden we're coming back um, you have also reminiscence of Willie and Robert, black and a lighter skinned. Um, 
partner. Uh, the temptation to use his skin to separate and take advantage of the situation or of situations is irresistible to him. Um, is this too hard for all people to uh, take advantage of the color of their own skin? Is that some of the questions that the Gyasi is is referencing here? When people talk about checking your privilege, again, it could mean something along those lines that am I using the color of my skin to leverage my power over others? Um, that would be one way to kind of think about that, right? Um, this idea can go wrong when it is used generally, obviously. We talk about that. But do we all abuse our power at times and in different situations? I think that's probably a better question to ask than am I using my color? I, I suppose, right? You could use your color in certain points or in certain places. Um, but that would be everyone, um, depending on the, uh, the, the context, right? Um, if I'm traveling through Kenya with a black friend of mine, um, he could use his color to leverage some benefits, uh, as I could not. Um, if I'm traveling um, you know, through Latin America with a friend who is Guatemalan, um, she could use her color in a way to leverage certain things that I could not. So we can all do this. Ideally, we don't, right? Ideally, we're sensitive and we're honest and we have integrity. And we don't try to use power over others in unfair ways. So Marjorie's poem is an interesting intertext uh, in this. And uh, again, that would be metafiction as well, right? We have um, we have this uh, artist inside the text that is uh, that is performing and expressing herself. Um, so let's take a look at this. This is on two eighty two. The sound of silence, cut by the occasional cough or shuffling of feet, taunted Marjorie. She leaned into the mic. She cleared her throat, and then she read. Split the castle open. Find me, find you. We, too, felt sand, wind, air. One felt whip, whipped, once shipped. We, too, black, me, you. One grew from cocoa's soil, birthed from nut, skin uncut still bleeding we too wade the waters seem different but our same our same sister skin who knew not me not you it's a powerful one i the chaos's character then says or the narrator then says she looked up a door had creaked open letting more light in there was enough light for her to see her father standing in the door frame but not enough for her to see the tears running down his face um, what do you think this poem means? That's the question I would ask you if we were in class right now. Who is this that is being split? Um, who is the me and who is the you? Who are the characters involved and what is their struggle? Um, in some ways, obviously, we can read this as Marjorie, as the me, and perhaps her grandmother um, that she just spent some time with in Ghana um, as, as the, the you. Um, both in the sand, both feeling the air and the wind. Um, one who was whipped, that would be her grandmother, right? Um, one shipped, that is the, the slave ships. That was perhaps uh, the, the slaves themselves. Um, one grew from cocoa's soil, birthed from nut, skin uncut, still bleeding. Um, she is uncut, but she's still bleeding in some ways. Uh, they are sisters. They are the same, 
but they are so very different with very different histories and different experiences. It's wonderful. Uh, there's more to it, right? This idea of it being split is, is an interesting one as it carries through um, the chapter. All right, we're going to pause there and uh, pick it up next time with the final chapter, Marcus. Hard to cut that short. Ooh. Another one of my uh, new favorites during this uh, this time of pandemic. <laughs> Music. Ah, it's so important to me. Uh, this is Vladimir Martinov. Vladimir Martinov. Uh, his album called Silencio. Um, this is an incredible artist uh, who does some opera, who does some of this. Um, this is vi- a violin. Um concerto here there's quite a few quite a few other things this is a little bit of his uh song called beatitudes check this out there have been a big uh, opera guy but man i love i love this one uh, this one this album again it's the same guy um Martinov, but it's called the Sacred Spirit of Russia. Um, incredible, uh, moving um, song called the Beatitudes. I find this kind of stuff is very, very helpful as I uh, meditate, as I just try to get silent and, and still with my thoughts. Usually, I, I, I just kind of I, I start the day reading the scriptures. Um, I usually follow along with the the lectionary that kind of runs through the calendar year. So that it kind of gets you through the Bible in about two years. And um, then after that, I just sit still and I listen to something like that. And I kind of let my thoughts um, kind of refocus and let all the ideas I've been reading about and praying about kind of just settle. And uh, that's just been a, a very fruitful way of, of starting my day. I've been doing that for quite a while now. And um, I, I, st- I strongly suggest it uh, if you don't already engage in some kind of a, um, a meditational practice like that. I find that... Um, Letting my thoughts um, focus on on scriptural truths, on, on promises that God makes to His His children, the Scriptures, and then just kind of sitting and meditating about those things and praying, opening opening uh, the lines up, if you will, to to what God may may speak. Um, all right, so we're finishing up here with Marcus, final chapter. Fantastic. Hopefully, you've been enjoying this as I have to go through this book again. I just really, as I've said it before, I really respect. Um, this author. Wow. It's incredible talent. Uh, but let's look at the opening lines here. Marcus didn't care for water. Well, that's nice, right? Because the whole time, um, Essie's line, this is Marcus is part of Essie's line. Essie's line has, has a fear of water. Um, Effia's line has a fear of fire, right? Um, Effia's line runs through the fire woman. And so fire has this kind of tormenting, uh, power. Um, Essie, 
uh, her line was ravaged as they were stolen from um, Africa and taken across the seas, right? So, so water has this um, violent kind of separating feeling. I don't know if it was one of these earlier lectures in this class. I'm teaching another book right now that's really related um, in many ways. So I'm a little, I get confused sometimes as we're talking. I'm, I'm teaching a book by a, a West Indian um, writer, so from the Caribbean. Um, his name is Derek Walcott, and he writes one of my very favorite books ever called Omeros. Uh, it's this incredible epic poem, so it's not easy to read, but um, I think I've mentioned this to you before. But he talks also about the people of the West Indies who were stolen, right, as part of the slave trade. Um, and so some of his works, and you see it here in Gyasi too, describe this transportation from Africa to the new world as an inverted baptism, right? A, a movement from life into death, the death of, of freedom, the death of expression into a life of oppression, violence, and death. Uh, so a reverse baptism. And so thus, water is not a pleasant substance, right? Water symbolizes violence, oppression, removal from from connection and, 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 and disconnection, right? So Marcus didn't care much for water. He was in college the first time he saw the ocean up close. He was in college the first time he saw the ocean up close, sorry. And it had made his stomach turn, all that space, that endless blue reaching out farther than the eye could hold. It terrified him. He hadn't told his friends he didn't know how to swim. And his roommate, a redhead from Maine, was already seven feet under the surface of the Atlantic before Marcus even stepped his toes in. There was something about the smell of the ocean that nauseated him. That wet, salt stink clung to his nose and made him feel as though he were already drowning. He could feel it thick in his throat, like brine. Brine is thick, salty water. Clinging to that place where his uvula hung so that he couldn't breathe right. When he was young, his father told him that black people didn't like water because they were brought over on slave ships. What did a black man want to swim for? The ocean floor was already littered with black men. Wow, that's brutal. Marcus always nodded patiently when his father said things like this. Sonny was forever talking about slavery, the prison lab labor complex, the system, segregation, the man. His father had a deep-seated hatred of white people. A hatred like a bag filled with stones. One stone for every year racial injustice continued to be the norm in America. He still carried the bag. That's, that's an incredible way to describe some of the complexities here at work, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So obviously Marcus is a son of one of the sons of Sonny. And remember, Sonny had several sons with several different women. Um, sadly, as he kind of ravaged others in his desire to fill the emptiness inside of himself. He also used drugs and alcohol to fill that space too. And he's, he's, we see him as a character who's deeply flawed and, and very desperate. Um, I do love, as I mentioned before to some of you um, earlier today in our conference, that final line in his chapter on 263, where it says he wanted to leave but he didn't do that. Instead, he stayed. There's a lot of hope in that line, right? He stayed to do what? To listen to his mother, to listen to wisdom and to be transformed by it. 
oh, that I will have more and more patience as I grow older. Um, patience to sit with those who are wise. Patience to take and accept advice from people that I don't necessarily like, but who have wisdom. Um, that's and that's important. So this guy, Marcus, a fascinating character right out the gates. Um, it's clear that Marcus, in some ways, doesn't necessarily follow his father in his father's hatred of white people. Um, this idea that his hatred was like a bag of rocks. Um, that's, not a, that's not a great image, right? That's not a positive thing. This bag of rocks that is holding him down, he's holding on to, right? He's choosing to hold on to this bag of rocks and it's bearing, weighing him down. Uh, that's, that's a sad image. Um, it would be, it seems, better not to be weighed down by this, but instead to fly free. Um, the image of flight is an important one in a lot of slave songs um, and slave literature that dates back uh, to the mid-1800s. Uh, this idea of flight, flight from slavery into freedom, right? So flying images versus bag of rocks images versus weight images um, flight versus being landlocked. What's the, what's the opposite of flight? Flightlessness. Um, that's a good tension to think about. So which characters in this text are flying, which are being weighed down and why, why are they being weighed down? What's keeping them down? What's keeping them from flying? A lot of times it's abuse, right? Terrible, terrible things that are done, uh, by racists and terrible people that should be imprisoned, right? They probably, they probably should be beaten too, but we won't include that in it. They should just be imprisoned for sure, right? But uh, they're, they're terrible people, these racists, and they've done terrible things to people. But the question the text seems to ask is, do you allow that racist person, do you allow that person who simplifies you to have any control over you at all? Or do you leave them behind and continue to reach for the stars, right? So many of these characters continue to reach for the stars. They continue to seek ways to fly and ways to leave behind the simple-minded racists who seek to tie them down or tie anchors to their souls. Um, some of the strongest characters in this text like seem to achieve flight. I love, uh, I can't, I've gone back to this a couple times, I think, with you guys, but I love the way the, the Willie chapter ends, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. She stepped forward, trembling still, and she sang. That's a type of flight. At the end of Yaw, is it also a type of flight? Soon Esther and Kukua came in carrying pot after pot of food. They served Yaw and his mother well into the night. They ate until the sun came up. Um, that's a bit of a stretch to call that flight, but there is celebration there. There's breaking of bread. There is a communion of sorts. You know, and to be honest with you, even this character, Sonny, who's a bit of a knucklehead, uh, the fact that he stays with his mother uh, means there's a chance of his having some flight. Um, and then what about Marjorie? I don't think I remember looking at Marjorie. Marjorie ends with Esther told her that it looked like she was going to... F oh, hello, look at this. At the end of Marjorie, final paragraph, page 283, her mother came to lift her up off the ground. Come on. Later, Esther told her that it looked like she was going to fly off the cliff, down the mountain, and into the sea. Wow. 
There you go. That's one. That's one of the chapters that I hadn't looked at very closely with this flight imagery, and that's by the best of all. Awesome. So some characters fly, right? They achieve this flight. Here at the beginning of Marcus, his dad Sonny is clearly not flying. His dad is weighed down by stones, uh, by rocks that are that are that are basically symbolic of his hatred, right? So what is Marcus doing? Marcus is pursuing a PhD at Stanford. Smart guy, 286. Marcus was getting his PhD in sociology at Stanford. It was something he would never have been able to imagine doing back when he was splitting a mattress with his father. And yet there he was. Sonny had been so proud when he told him he'd been accepted to Stanford that he cried. It was the only time Marcus had ever seen him do it. I love that. Um, so this PhD at Stanford is, is a type of flight, right? Is, is, a, is a movement towards something that is elevated and something that is powerful. Um, why does Sonny cry at the news of acceptance to Stanford? Uh, you know, perhaps in spite of himself, uh, perhaps uh, for a moment looking not at the bag of rocks, but seeing his son standing on his shoulders flying, reaching this, this great height, and is moving and it is wonderful and must be celebrated, right? So um, Essie and Effia. Uh, the lines meet at last in this book for the first time uh, on 292. Actually, if you want to be very kind of specific, you might say that the lines meet um, back in Ephia's chapter when Ephia puts her ear, she puts her ear against the floor, right? Um, let's see here. I'm trying to find this real quick here. This is on page 92. It's, it's when um, James says, you want to go home? It's no better at your home. Um, let's see here. Oh, here we go. Uh, page 17, right? So the last time that Ephia and Essie were close proximity, close in proximity was right here. Um in that, that page on 17, where she says, James, there are, there are there people down there? Um, how can you, but how can you keep them down there crying, eh? You white people, my father warned me about your ways. Take me home, take me home right now. So Effia and Essie, so Essie is down in there. Effia doesn't know her, uh, but she's down in there, as we learn in the next chapter. And so here, now on 292, 292, um, I'm key. The dreadlocked woman said, and this is my friend Marjorie. At the mention of her name, Marjorie lifted her head, the curtain of wild hair parting to reveal a lovely face and a beautiful necklace. Nice to meet you, Marjorie, Marcus said, extending his hand. So this is a cool moment, right? When Marcus meets Marjorie and the Effia and Essie lines meet for the first time, or I should say the second time. The first time this closely, though, we could definitely say. Um, on 294, the, uh, the two are talking. Um, let's see here. Yeah, I'll see you're talking.